Let's turn together now to John's first letter, the first letter of John. And chapter 3 tonight, looking at verses 19 to 24. So the final part of John, 1 John uh, and chapter 3. We'll read from verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And we'll leave the final verse till God willing next time, because it flows straight into what he says in the next part of the letter in the beginning of chapter 4 about the spirits and testing the spirits. But from verse 19 down as far as verse 23, we'll look at that this evening. Now we saw previously uh, that John, while he's setting out those great themes of what we are to believe, how we are to behave, and also how we are in relation to each other, and how all of these kind of interact and uh, connect together, we saw that he took a couple of uh, of uh, digressions in chapter 2 where he has a digression about the church in verses 12 to 17 and also in uh, 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 where you have a digression following that verses 15 to 17 about the world so he took these two side steps if you like to deal with these topics and then he came back to the three main topics again covering them in turn and he's taking another side step here He's coming to take another digression in these verses 19 to 24. And this time it's a digression that's to do with assurance or reassurance. Assurance of faith, assurance of salvation, assurance of being saved. Uh, however, we, however we put it, it's that assurance or reassurance that he's dealing with in this digression or in this sidestep until he comes back again to deal with his main theme. And of course they're very much related to his main theme as well. And it's, it's evidence, isn't it, that you find uh, him taking this sidestep here because assurance of salvation is actually the very main purpose of his writing this letter. If you look ahead to chapter 5 and verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So this is really the main purpose of John writing this letter to these Christians that he's writing to, facing all this false teaching and trying to take them away from their grounding in Christ and faith in Christ. I'm writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. And that's always an important and significant point for us to apply to our own lives as well. And it's really a sign here of John being such a sensitive and dedicated pastor in his teaching. That he's taking this time just to cover this particular uh, area of teaching for them. Uh, because he knew, as we ourselves know, that many, if not most Christians, lack assurance. Or at least lack assurance from time to time anyway, if not all the time. 
Uh, many of us know what it's like to lack assurance, not to have the assurance that we'd want to have, or maybe the assurance that sometimes we did have or had in the beginning of our Christian walk. And uh, so he proceeds to give directions in regard to this assurance and how we indeed should look at lack of assurance and come back to have assurance or where we should focus if we lack that assurance. Now, is that not what you and I tonight would really want to have? It's one thing to have God as our God and Jesus as our Savior, and that's the most important thing of all. But it's also important to know that you have that, to be assured that you have that, because it adds uh, this dimension to your life that John's going on to speak about, this, this confidence that we would have before God in our relationship with God and with other people as well in our service for God. All of that is really added to or reinforced, if you like, by knowing that we have eternal life uh, as well as just possessing it. So it's so important for us tonight, isn't it, that we would know that we have eternal life. First of all, that we do have it, that we have come to possess it through faith in Christ, through repentance from sin, through all the things the Bible tells us are the avenues towards having and possessing that eternal life, but also to really have it and to know it in an assured way that this is in fact where we are spiritually, that we have this in relation to God. And so there are two things in the verses before us tonight that we want to use as summary points. First of all, he's dealing here with what he calls a condemning heart. This heart that condemns us, verse 20, whenever our heart condemns us. And when he uses the word heart here, he's really dealing specifically with conscience. Heart often means our inner part, our souls. Sometimes it means the whole of our soul, every faculty of our soul, our mind, emotions, conscience, will. But here he's talking about uh, condemning. And the heart condemning is pretty much the matter of the conscience, our conscience condemning us and uh, bringing a sense of condemnation to us. And uh, that's what he's really dealing with here, the condemning heart and what to do about it. That's the first point, and we'll see a number of things under that. The second point is the confidence that comes from an uncondemning heart. He says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, and so on. So he deals with a condemning heart and how to deal with it, and a non-condemning heart and the benefits of the confidence especially that comes from that. So what exactly does all that entail? What does he mean by this uncondemning heart? What does he mean by this if your heart condemns you? First of all, who is he referring to? Who is he dealing with? Well, he's not dealing with those who are not converted, with those who are unsaved, the heart uh, does condemn us when we're an unsaved condition. Most of us know that very well, if not all of us, that when we come to be confronted with the truth of God, when God confronts us with the reality of sin, with the reality of guilt, with the reality of our relation to Him and our answerableness to Him, and with the reality of His judgment and of His looking into our lives and of His assessment of us, we come to know our heart condemning us, our conscience condemns us. That's at least how it ought to be. It presses the guilt of our souls upon us. It presses the guilt of our persons upon our minds. 
And you need to ask yourself tonight, and I need to ask myself before we go on any further, is that what I have? Have you moved on beyond that? Or have you even come to that itself? We can't actually go on without asking that question, without pressing that question. How is it with your own heart tonight? Is your heart the heart that's still unsaved? Is your heart the heart that still has not received or accepted Jesus on his own terms? That's come to bow obediently before him and receive him as he's offered in the gospel. This great saviour, this great king, this one whom God has set apart to be the saviour of sinners. Have you accepted this Jesus? Are you still just formally acquainted with him in the gospel, in the record of God's word, which is itself a very good thing? But as you well know, as is emphasized so often in the preaching of the gospel, faith in Christ is no mere formality. It's a personal relationship. It's an acceptance of his person, as he's offered and described in the gospel. So that's the first question we need to ask ourselves. And if you're tonight in that position where you know that you haven't yet given your life to Christ, that you haven't yet received him, or accepted him, or welcomed him into your heart, well, that's the first thing you need to deal with before you go any further. You cannot receive assurance or reassurance that you're saved if you're not yet saved. You need to actually see to that very basic point first of all. And so I hope tonight that all of us have come to that point and moved on beyond that point. Because that's really the purpose of why God has given us the gospel. So that we would come to be saved and then build on that the knowledge of and the assurance that we are in fact saved. We're not going to go further into that, but it's an important point before we move on. So he's not actually addressing these points to people who are not saved. He's addressing this to Christians, to people who've come to know the Lord who have come, become themselves disciples of Christ, who have come to confess him and know that he has indeed saved them, or believe that he has saved them. They've come to trust in him, to believe in him. And Christians, as John well knew, very often struggle with their faith, struggle with this matter of assurance especially, and at many times find things in their lives that causes them perhaps to doubt and to reflect negatively upon where they are in the relation with God. And struggling with assurance and with confidence is something that most, if not all of us, are familiar with. And so it's important just to stop and note that God, in his kindness, as John here was writing to these recipients of his letter, so it's God in his kindness that has given us his word and given us the teaching of his word so that we can apply that to this as well as to every other point. Wherever we struggle with assurance, we're not going to deal with it properly unless we're taking our point of departure and direction from God's own teaching, from God's own truth. I came across uh, an illustration that um, I think is very graphic and very helpful. It's in uh, um, the work of the Christian in Complete Armour by William Gurnall, that passage in, uh, in uh, uh, in the New Testament, in Ephesians, dealing with the armor of God that he gives to his people. And one of the places, among many, many wonderful sayings and, and uh, illustrations here, he says, Faith places us in the ark. Just like Noah and the family in the ark in the Old Testament. Faith places us in the ark. And the ark, he means, of course, is Jesus. 
as the Savior. Faith places us in the ark. But he said that does not mean we will not be many times seasick on the journey. We are at times seasick in our faith. Our faith sometimes, as it's assaulted by various things, we come at times to struggle with assurance and confidence, even the reality of faith itself. There are times of seasickness in this great vessel that's taking us onwards to heaven, we trust. And God has not at all given us a guarantee that that will not be the case. There are sometimes very rough seas for Christians to traverse, to cross on the journey that's home. And even though we know God is with us and that God's assurances are there in his word, sometimes we ourselves find that we have allowed some of something of that sea of doubt and that sea of, of uh, uh, lack of confidence to come into our lives. And it's helpful, I think, to ask what is the cause or what are the causes of this lack of confidence, this lack of assurance? Where does this come from? What is it that gives rise to it? And it's in this kind of situation that we find uh, we're thankful for the Westminster Confession of Faith, among many other documents, but um, in chapter 18, which deals with assurance, and paragraph 4, we have a number of things mentioned as how our assurance can come to be shaken. Now that means that, uh, please don't think that the likes of the Confession of Faith or your catechisms, particularly the Confession of Faith, is just a document that has heavy theology in it, and it's a very formal document, and it's got uh, lots of passages dealing with the theology that arises out of God's Word. There is that. But it is a marvelously pastoral document because virtually every single chapter of it and every paragraph of it almost has something to do with our personal experience, our relationship with God, and such things as assurance or lack of assurance. So don't hesitate to use the confession of faith. Don't think that you're not going to be able to understand it because it's an old document in old language and dealing with uh, theological matters. Here's what it says, chapter 18 and paragraph 4. True believers may have the assurance of their, of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. You what it's saying? May have their faith, uh, the assurance of their salvation, rather, diverse ways, various ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted. But it doesn't leave it at that. It goes on then to give four ways in which that can be brought about. Firstly, as by negligence in preserving of it. Now, we've all been there, those of us who know the Lord, those of us who uh, are following the Lord, even after many years. We still know this is something we actually fall into doing. We are negligent sometimes in preserving our assurance, in looking after it. We allow other things to interfere with it. We allow something of our own sinful hearts to come to affect how we see Christ and see our relationship with him. And secondly, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. Most, if not all of us, have been there. Things we know we've done that have caused God's displeasure to be known by us. And we come to his word and realize what we've done. Well, he specified that we shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have thought that way. We shouldn't have spoken that way. We shouldn't have gone on in that way. 
Sometimes it can be over a process of time, leading even to backsliding. But what he says, what it says here is, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit. Thirdly, by some sudden or vehement temptation. Something that comes upon us that's unexpected, some providence or other, similar to what we saw this morning with uh, Ecclesiastes. In fact, there's quite a lot of, uh, uh, of um, connections really with that in this evening. But sometimes a sudden or vehement temptation, something happens that you see in the world, in your own life or in the life of somebody else, and it causes you to be shaken. It causes you, your assurance to be shaken. You call into question perhaps some aspects of God's own truth. How can this be? And fourthly, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and have no light. Well, that's maybe not such a common one, but it does happen. It happened, for example, in the case of Job. When you look at Job, this very righteous, this holy man, and yet God withdrew the light of his countenance. He wasn't able to find God the way he once used to. He wasn't uh, as near God as he once was aware of. And he began questioning and sometimes he began even uh, elements of doubt about his relation to God and so on. So these are ways the confession tells us that our faith can be diminished, shaken. Our faith, not our faith, our uh, assurance of salvation can be. Although faith is very much keyed in with that. So these are things which actually are uh, causes of our assurance being affected or coming to lack of assurance. But you do notice, if I just read that passage again, it begins, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation shaken, diminished, intermitted. It's important that it says in the pastoral wisdom of those who drew up the confession, true believers may have that. In other words, it's really emphasizing for us. Tonight, if you lack assurance, don't say lack of assurance equals lack of faith. Lack of assurance is not itself evidence of lacking faith. A very genuine and a very sincere faith. And a faith that's been there for many years may sometimes come through these things we've mentioned from the confession to be shaken and diminished. And we may lose our, our assurance. We may come to have a lack of assurance. So what do we do about it? Well, he's saying here, um, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our, our heart before him. For whenever con God, uh, our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. What do we do about it? We reflect. We go back to basic things in our relationship with God. We go back to basic theological points, not so as to just study theology, but to see how it relates to our practical way of life. What he's saying is, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. What does he mean by this? What's he talking about? Well, some commentators say that means what he's going to immediately say after that in the following verses. Others say it's what he means is what he has said just before this in the previous verses. And I think that's the best way to take it. By this, what he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
When he said already in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. In other words, when you have a sincerity of love, when you have a genuineness of love, when you've come to love the people of God, even though at times, such as in the New Testament, that was a very particularly dangerous thing to do. It's itself evidence that the love that's in your heart sincerely for them, genuinely for them, is itself an evidence that you're a believer, that you've passed from death to life, that you're no longer under the dominance of death or of sin, but under the grace of God and the Spirit of God. What he means is when our heart condemns us, when we lack that assurance, when we've come to a conclusion that we don't actually have salvation after all, when we love in truth, when we genuinely and sincerely love, then God is greater than our heart if our heart condemns us. In other words, he reads our sincerity. He reads what we are in reality, even though sometimes we may be afraid ourselves at times that we're something else. And when our heart therefore condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He reads our sincerity. Remember, uh, and uh, I don't say that John is reflecting on this particularly, but there is an incident recorded in the Gospel of John, which he wrote, which really helps us, I think, understand what he's saying here about God is greater than our heart. Remember that Jesus interviewed Peter after Peter had grievously sinned against him and denied him and denied that he was his disciple denied that he had ever wanted anything to do with him and so Jesus met him after his resurrection Uh, he came and met Jesus and three times he questioned him about his love he said Simon son of John do you love me more than these he said yes Lord you know that I love you Second time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. In other words, Peter is really pointing to God being greater than himself, to Jesus being greater than himself. And when Jesus asked him the question, do you really love me? Do you sincerely love me? Is it true that you love me? Look at what you've done in your life. Look at this recent incident. Do you love me indeed? And uh, Peter is grieved that he asked him the third time that he had to answer this question again. So where did he go? Where did he go for his final answer? He went to Christ's knowledge. And it's as if Peter, and this is really what's at the heart of what he's saying. This is what's behind his words where he's saying to Jesus, Lord, I know I've done wrong, and you know I've done wrong. But you know that that's not the tenor of my life. That was a blip. That was a serious blip. That was something I should not have done. You know that. But you know that deep down, you know in my heart, you know that despite that, you know that beyond that, I do love you. And you know sometimes, that's what you need to go back to. You need to go back to the Lord's knowledge. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. He comes to reassure you 
By bringing your mind to the knowledge that he has of you. The world may say you're a fraud. You may sometimes say of your own heart that it's a fraud. You may sometimes come to doubt whether you've indeed come to be saved or not. But deep down as you search, as you look into your heart, and as you see and you come to this conviction, I do love the Lord. Lord, you know that I love you. And you see, you're leaving the matter with God being greater than your heart. Greater than perhaps you yourself at that moment are willing to say of yourself. By this we know that we are of the truth and we assure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Psalm 46 is a psalm that we're all very familiar with. A psalm of great upheavals. A psalm of gigantic movements in the creation as it, as it pictures really the psalmist's own heart and the psalmist's own experience where he says that uh, though mountains be removed and though the seas roar and all of these great upheavals in the creation as they're symbolic of the storms that meet the psalmist especially from his enemy's point of view. The heathen raged tumultuously. The kingdoms were moved. The Lord God uttered his voice. The earth melted for fear. What does he then say? Or what does God say? Be still and know that I am God. And that's exactly what John is saying. Because the word here... Um, reassure in verse 19 we shall know and reassure our heart before him you see before him is important in the presence of God you deal with it as God himself would have you deal with it not by pretending it's, it's uh, not a problem to have lack of assurance but by bringing it before him by looking at his promises by looking at his word by looking at the sincerity of your love for him and for God's people that word really means literally pacify. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and shall pacify our heart before him. It's like the stilling of the storm. It's like the calm that Jesus brings. It's like the re, this reassurance is like the be still and know that I am God. Take my word for it, God is saying. Not your own thoughts at times. A condemning heart and what to do about it. I've maybe not explained that very well. I'm sure I haven't. But the main point is that if we come to a lack of assurance and are aware of that lack of assurance, we bring it to God. We go over the things that God has been actively engaged in in our lives, such as our love for our fellow Christians. And then we come to the conclusion that would not be the case. If I wasn't saved, if I wasn't changed, if I didn't have that new outlook that God has given me. And so secondly, he's dealing with the confidence of an uncondemning heart. He says, if our heart does not condemn us, in verse 21, we have confidence before God. In other words, he's moving really from, if our heart condemns us, what do we do? We go to God with it. And uh, by this we know, we are reassured, we pacify our hearts by looking at what God has done, what he has enabled us to continue to do. And that moves us into the heart that doesn't condemn us. 
And if we don't have that condemning heart, we have a confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. In other words, he's referring to our relationship with God in terms of communion, prayer, fellowship with God, awareness of God in our life, taking the truth of God at his face value, all of that in our relationship with God. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. See, a condemning heart, a heart that still has a measure of, of perhaps guilt at times, and a measure of lack of assurance, that's going to be a hesitant heart. If you know you've done something that's wrong, if you haven't had it properly dealt with, if your heart is condemning you, then that causes the relationship with God to stutter, doesn't it, from your point of view? You don't have the confidence to come before God as you ought. There's a hesitancy. You come with prayer, but you're afraid that God perhaps will not answer. You don't have the same boldness as before. All of that is tied up with this lack of assurance. But when our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, we're never perfect in this regard, I'm sure. I certainly have never been perfect coming before God and being able to say, Lord, there is absolutely nothing in my mind, in my memory, in my heart that comes between me and you or has ever come between me and you. There's always that. There's always going to be the imperfection. You come back to the sincerity. You come back to the reality of your faith and how God himself has provided for everything that we have in terms of our need and of our lack. We come with prayer and we come with uh, a, a knowledge that God will receive us. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. See, disobedience destroys confidence. And when we know we've been disobedient, we can't then expect to have the confidence in prayer and communion with God that we would want to have. We have to deal with the sin. We have to deal with the disobedience. We have to deal with that which comes between us and God. For the confidence to be restored, for God to reassure us, for God to pacify our hearts. This is very much Christian experience, Christian development, Christian growth. This is something the Bible brings us to acknowledge our need of, to know these great truths of Scripture so that we can progress in our, in our spiritual life, that we can actually build on what's already gone, that we can actually know um, the parameters of a relationship with God in different ways, as John brings it before us here. And then he says, and this is his commandment. See how, how easily John flows, as it were, from from what we believe into what we are to do. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And it's interesting that it's a singular he's using. This is his commandment. And yet he goes on to speak about two things. A commandment, if you like, that's two-sided. It's one commandment, but it contains, firstly, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, you don't often find uh, Jesus described in such a, a, a complete and full way as that, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Why is he giving such a complete name or definition to Jesus? Well, so that 
we will actually, um, in reading that, that we would say, it's the whole Christ that gives me confidence. It's the whole Christ that my life is to be based on. It's the whole Christ that I must believe in. And that's why he says, in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, because whenever you read the name, it means the character. It means the revealed person. It means Jesus as he's revealed to us in the Bible. Not as some people say it should be revealed to us. Not as some people say uh, nowadays we ought to believe. It's as it's here in God's word. The Jesus that's revealed to us in the Bible is the Jesus we have to believe in. That's the name that's been revealed to us. Every aspect of Christ that's revealed to us in Scripture is there for our believing in. And in fact, the word literally is believing on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. That would be literally how we should translate it. Believe on the name. Not just in the name, but on. In the sense of when you come to think about what faith is, it's many things, but it is this at the very bottom, at the very heart of it, there is this coming to build your life or to deposit your life upon Jesus, upon Himself. You base your life upon Him. You have Him as your foundation. That's what gives your life stability and structure and confidence. Not in your own faith, by which you come to rest upon him, but on himself as the foundation on which your faith rests. So he's saying, this is his commandment, that we believe on the name, on the character, on the person of Jesus Christ. And also that we love one another. Let's say what we had right through the chapter previously. And we mentioned many aspects of what John teaches by way of loving one another. We saw it in the previous passage as well. Um, it's important, you see, uh, that John is linking here love and belief. Because all too often they're detached, aren't they? By Nowadays you can read uh, and hear people saying, even people who are Christians or claim to be Christians, love is everything. Love is everything. It's not what I believe. It's not really how I behave otherwise. Love is everything. If I love this person or that person or these people, that's all that matters really. Is it all that matters? No, John is saying. It's not all that matters. Yes, love is important. Love is exceedingly important. Loving one another is exceedingly important. But it's never detached or divorced from what you believe and the person you believe in and obedience to the person you believe in, obedience to his commandment. Because love is commanded, but so also is faith. They're commanded as joined together. Let's not fall into the trap of thinking, well, if my love is genuine, that's about all that's required of me. No, that's not all that's required of you or of me. We're required to repent of our sin. We're required to believe in the Christ that's uh, revealed in Scripture as He is revealed. We're required to believe in all aspects of God's character or attributes, including the very difficult ones, including the ones that really shake us up. His anger, His wrath, His judgment, 
is holiness. These are not side issues. They're not outdated modes of thinking. They're God as he is. As he's revealed himself to us. So we believe in the name of his son. And we love one another just as he has commanded us. So tonight let's look at our hearts. Let's look into our souls. Let's let's look into our conscience. As our conscience come to know the redeeming touch of Christ, the blood of Christ applied to it. In other words, have we come to accept Jesus as the answer to a guilty conscience, to an unsaved life? Am I still without that? Have I not yet come to do that? See, I don't trust in the teachings of the church or the church itself, whatever denomination we may be of, That's not the basis of my confidence. That's not the ground on which God accepts me, that I believe something just because the church says it, just because the Kirk session says it, just because the minister says it. My acceptance with God is entirely on the ground of Christ and what he is and his righteousness. Is that what I've received? Is that what I'm building my hope on? Is that in my heart tonight? Is he enthroned in my heart? Is my life his? Have I given it to him? Am I holding it back from him? Am I saved? And if I am saved, is assurance of salvation important to me? Yes, of course it is. And if I lack it, well, I go to things that God has already done. I go to the great immovable things of God himself and God's work and God's being God's redeeming love but I also go to what he's given me the privilege of knowing and exercising my love for my fellow Christians my regard for them my remembrance of them my prayers for them my delight in being with them because we know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brothers and if our heart condemns us as at times it will when we've strayed, when we've gone aside, where we've been shaken, as the confession says, diminished and intermitted in our assurance, well, God is greater than our heart. And we can, as sincere believers, go to him and say, Lord, I know there are many things wrong in my life. Forgive me for all of that. Continue to bless me despite of that. But deep down in my heart, You know that I love you. You know that I wouldn't give you away for anything. You know that I would not choose you instead of the world, the whole world, the whole universe. That's what you mean to me. That's why I'm saying that I believe and that I believe in this Christ. Let's pray. Lord our God, our Father in heaven, we thank you tonight for your word of truth and for its reassurance to your people that when you have saved them, they cannot actually ever be lost. But Lord, we know that we can bring upon ourselves, as well as in the wisdom and sovereignty of your providence, matters which cause that our assurance of salvation is indeed shaken or diminished or interrupted. 
Forgive us, we pray, for the times that we bring this upon ourselves. And when we do find our assurance lacking, when we find, Lord, that we have not uh, followed that right path as we should have, that maintains our assurance of your salvation, Lord, help us, we pray, to look back, uh, to re-examine and to come again to, to before you uh, so that we will come to take our encouragement and our assurance from those things that your word commends. We ask that you would teach us day by day how to grow in grace and how to grow in assurance that we may be all the more robust and the more stable in our spiritual lives. Receive, we pray, our worship once again and pardon us for Christ's sake. Amen.